brief in opposition to special counsel Jack Smith's petition for writ of certiorari before judgment in United States v. Donald J. Trump. Picking up on page 17. Reasons for Denying the Petition 1. The special counsel identifies no extraordinary circumstance that justifies deviation from normal appellate practice or requires immediate determination by this court. This court's Rule 11 provides that a petition for certiorari before judgment will be granted only upon a showing that the case is of such imperative public importance as to justify deviation from normal appellate practice and to require immediate determination in this court. The special counsel emphasizes the imperative public importance of this case, but he provides virtually no explanation of why that importance justifies deviation from normal appellate practice or requires immediate determination in this court. A. Prudential considerations weigh against certiorari before judgment. As the special counsel acknowledges, a request for certiorari before judgment is extraordinary. This court has often emphasized the value of percolation, i.e. allowing the lower courts to first carefully consider novel and difficult questions of law. It often will be preferable to allow several courts to pass on a given claim in order to gain the benefit of adjudication by different courts in different factual contexts. A rule freezing the first final decision rendered on a particular legal issue and allowing only one final adjudication would deprive this court of the benefit it receives from permitting several courts of appeals to explore a difficult question before this court grants certiorari. Here, the special counsel urges that no courts of appeals should be allowed to explore the difficult questions before this court grants certiorari. He is incorrect. This litigation exemplifies the wisdom of allowing difficult issues to mature through full consideration by the D.C. Circuit. Such review often eliminates many subsidiary but still troubling arguments and simplifies this court's task by winnowing arguments through adversarial testing. Issuing the writ before judgment also has the potential for producing splintered decisions. That potential is magnified when there has been no prior panel consideration of a case. Thus, bypassing the winnowing function of the Court of Appeals is something that this court routinely refuses to do. The special counsel notes that this appeal involves questions of extraordinary importance. This case presents a fundamental question at the heart of our democracy that only this court can definitively resolve. This case involves a paradigmatic issue of imperative public importance, indeed one that is at the apex of public importance. 
and erroneous denial of a claim of presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for official acts warrants this court's review. In due course. Yet importance does not automatically necessitate speed. If anything, the opposite is usually true. Novel, complex, sensitive, and historic issues, such as the existence of presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for official acts, call for more careful deliberation, not less. When a case arouses keen interests, courts should respond to that circumstance in a calm, orderly, and deliberative fashion in accordance with the best traditions of law. Judicial orders warrant the utmost respect when they are perceived by the public to have been reached in the most regular and careful manner. Indeed, the fact that this case arises in the vortex of political dispute warrants caution, not haste. Especially when they are considered too quickly, great cases, like hard cases, make bad law. For great cases are called great, not by reason of their real importance in shaping the law of the future, but because of some accident of immediate overwhelming interest which appeals to the feelings and distorts the judgment. This case, which is both great and hard, exemplifies the need for a cautious, measured, deliberative approach. B. The special counsel identifies no compelling reason for haste. To justify departing from these principles, the special counsel offers the naked assertion that the public interest demands that this appeal be decided in the current term. In fact, the special counsel requests a substantially compressed briefing schedule that would virtually guarantee a cramped, incomplete presentation of the issues. The special counsel justifies this request with vague references to the supposed paramount public importance of holding President Trump's potential criminal trial as expeditiously as possible. The special counsel demands immediate resolution of the immunity question so that the trial may occur on an appropriate timetable. But in an omission that speaks volumes, the special counsel never explains why March 4, 2024 is supposedly the only appropriate timetable for this historic prosecution. That date has no talismanic significance and the prospect that an interlocutory appeal of an immunity question might affect a pending trial date is a routine feature of such cases. Especially in cases of extraordinary public moment, the individual may be required to submit to delay not immoderate in extent and not oppressive in its consequences if the public welfare or convenience will thereby be promoted. A mere assertion of delay does not constitute substantial harm. Some delay would be occasioned by almost all interlocutory appeals. 
Moreover, whereas here the D.C. Circuit has dramatically expedited proceedings on appeal, any delay will be minimized by its expedition in hearing this appeal. In short, there is no reason to believe a minor delay will substantially harm the United States. C. The special counsel's request creates a compelling appearance of partisan motivation. The special counsel's extraordinary request, combined with its vague, threadbare justification, creates the compelling appearance of a partisan motivation to ensure that President Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president, and the greatest electoral threat to President Biden, will face a months-long criminal trial at the height of his presidential campaign. The current potential trial date of March 4, 2024, falls the day before Super Tuesday, one of the most critical dates of the Republican primary calendar. Further, the special counsel's insistence that this court decide the immunity question during its current term reflects the evident desire to schedule President Trump's potential trial during the summer of 2024, at the height of the election season. This is all in light of the fact that the case brought, and now sought to be rushed by the special counsel, attempts to criminalize official acts taken by President Trump in late 2020 and early 2021, three years ago. The special counsel's request, therefore, cannot avoid the appearance of partisanship. This court is not required to exhibit a naivete from which ordinary citizens are free. As soon as the special counsel's petition was filed, commentators from across the political spectrum observed that its evident motivation is to schedule the trial before the 2024 presidential election, a nakedly political motive. The special counsel thus confuses the public interest with a partisan interest of his superior, President Biden. The petition echoes Charles Wilson, former president of General Motors, who is supposed to have said, what's good for General Motors is good for the country. Those in power, even giving them the benefit of the greatest goodwill, are inclined to believe that what is good for them is good for the country. So also here. The special counsel and the Biden administration to which he reports are inclined to believe that what is good for them is good for the country. Tens of millions of American voters plainly disagree, thus creating an electoral threat to those in power that evidently drives this extraordinary request. The special counsel's politicization of the trial schedule, including in this petition, departs from the best traditions of the U.S. Department of Justice. Those traditions call for prosecutors to avoid the appearance of election interference in the prosecution of political candidates. Federal prosecutors may never make a decision regarding an investigation or prosecution or select the timing of investigative steps or criminal charges for the purpose of affecting any election or for the purpose of giving an advantage or disadvantage to any candidate or political party. 
Federal prosecutors and agents may never select the timing of any action, including investigative steps, criminal charges, or statements, for the purpose of affecting any election or for the purpose of giving an advantage or disadvantage to any candidate or political party. Such a purpose is inconsistent with the department's mission and with the principles of federal prosecution. The special counsel's extraordinary petition creates a strong appearance of a significant departure from those rules and aspirations. Even worse, the special counsel's request threatens to tarnish this court's procedures with the same appearance of partisanship. The special counsel urges the court to jettison venerable principles of prudence, leapfrog the ordinary process of appellate review, and rush headlong to decide one of the most novel, complex, and momentous legal issues in American history. In doing so, the special counsel seeks to embroil this court in a partisan rush to judgment on some of the most historic and sensitive questions that the court may ever decide. The court should decline that invitation. D. The cases the special counsel cites do not support the petition. The special counsel seeks to compare this case to a handful of cases in which this court granted certiorari before judgment. None supports the special counsel here. First, the special counsel relies heavily on United States v. Nixon, 1974. Nixon, however, differs critically from this case in several respects. First, Nixon concerned President Nixon's assertion of executive privilege against a criminal subpoena. The far more momentous question whether the president himself could be indicted and forced to stand trial for his official acts was not at issue. Second, Nixon did not write on a blank slate. Questions of the president's executive privilege in criminal proceedings had received extensive, thoughtful discussion in prior appellate decisions. These included the D.C. Circuit's en banc decision in Nixon v. Sirica, which had addressed the same privilege asserted against a grand jury subpoena the year before. And they included Chief Justice Marshall's discussion of the subpoena for Thomas Jefferson's letters in the trial of Aaron Burr, United States v. Burr, 1807, as well as 17 decades of historical practice in between. Here, by contrast, no current or former president has ever been criminally charged for his official acts before, and no appellate court has ever addressed whether a president has immunity from prosecution for official acts. Because even a single opinion from the Court of Appeals is likely to assist this court in its ultimate resolution of the issues, this litigation exemplifies the wisdom of allowing difficult issues to mature through full consideration by at least one Court of Appeals. Third, the procedural posture in Nixon was very different. It involved an interlocutory dispute over a subpoena ducis tecum issued for evidence in the criminal trial of third-party criminal defendants who possessed their own constitutional and statutory speedy trial rights. 
Delay in that case, therefore, would have directly implicated the rights of specific third parties, not a vaguely defined public interest. The special counsel's other cases fare no better. Most involved prior written consideration of the issues on appeal by at least one court of appeals, and credible claims that delay would cause specific, irreparable injury to the petitioner or third parties. Neither factor is present here. First, Biden v. Nebraska involved a petition for certiorari before judgment filed after the Eighth Circuit issued a nationwide preliminary injunction against the challenged student debt cancellation plan. In entering the injunction, the Eighth Circuit had issued a decision addressing the crucial standing question. Furthermore, the decision directly implicated the rights of third parties, millions of student borrowers. The government thus asked this court to vacate the injunction or to grant certiorari before judgment to avoid prolonging this uncertainty for the millions of affected borrowers. Next, Department of Education v. Brown adds nothing to the analysis, as it involved a challenge to the same policy that was decided the same day as Nebraska. In United States v. Texas, 2023, the Fifth Circuit had issued a detailed opinion denying the government's stay application that addressed both standing and the merits, and that conflicted with a recent decision of the Sixth Circuit. Thus, there were detailed opinions from two different circuits, and the government faced specific, immediate, irreparable harm from delayed review. Finally, in Department of Commerce v. New York, the District Court had ruled on January 15, 2019, and the Census Questionnaire needed to be finalized for printing by the end of June 2019. No such rigid external deadline is present here. E. The District Court opinion illustrates the hazards of hasty decision-making. In the District Court, the government insisted on a highly expedited resolution of these questions. The District Court obliged by issuing a ruling within nine days of the close of briefing on the motions. The result was a hasty decision that overlooked significant authorities and made a series of fundamental errors. This decision illustrates the hazards of resolving these complex, sensitive questions at breakneck speed. A handful of examples illustrates these deficiencies. The full account of them deserves careful briefing on the merits, both in the D.C. Circuit and in this court. First, the district court emphasized that no court has ever accepted the doctrine of criminal immunity. But no president has ever been indicted for official acts before. The absence of any historical precedent for this indictment, despite centuries of both motive and opportunity to indict former presidents for their official acts, is perhaps the most telling indication of a severe constitutional problem with this prosecution. The district court ignored these precedents. 
Second, the district court held that the absence of an express provision in the Constitution granting the president official immunity implies that no such immunity exists. There is no presidential immunity clause, the district court reasoned, and the lack of constitutional text is no accident. But this reasoning would entail that the president has no immunity from civil suit as well, which contradicts this court's precedent. Fitzgerald upheld absolute presidential immunity from civil liability in the absence of explicit constitutional or congressional guidance, based on principles of separation of powers, history, and common law. Moreover, the district court's logic would invalidate other well-established immunity doctrines for executive officials, state officials, police, prosecutors, and judges, all of whom enjoy versions of immunity not expressly provided in the Constitution. Third, the district court cited Alexander Hamilton's writings in the Federalist No. 69 as supposedly repudiating presidential immunity. But as noted above, a more specific statement in the same essay supports President Trump and contradicts the district court's holding. Quote, the President of the United States would be liable to be impeached, tried, and, upon conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, removed from office, and would afterwards be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. Fourth, the district court reasoned that criminal immunity would lead to implausibly perverse results, and that the former president would be utterly unaccountable for their crimes. This is incorrect. The Constitution does not license a president's criminal impunity. Rather, it establishes a powerful structural check to prevent political factions from abusing the formidable threat of criminal prosecution to disable the president and attack their political enemies. Under the Constitution's balanced structural approach, a president may be prosecuted, but only if he is first impeached, tried, and convicted in the U.S. Senate. The Constitution opens the door to such prosecutions, but requires a strong political consensus— i.e. the participation of the political branches, including a supermajority of the U.S. Senate, the Republic's traditional cooling saucer, before such a drastic action can be taken. Accordingly, this court has repeatedly emphasized that impeachment, not criminal prosecution, provides the principal check and deterrent to a president's malfeasance in his official acts. The district court rejected this reasoning by citing the possibility of marginal cases where presidential crimes might escape enforcement, but every structural protection in the Constitution necessarily creates the possibility of under-enforcement. That is a feature, not a bug, of the separation of powers. While the separation of powers may prevent us from righting every wrong, it does so in order to ensure that we do not lose liberty. Fifth, the district court reasoned that immunity from criminal prosecution is unnecessary, as a president can simply avoid committing federal crimes and have nothing to worry about. 
quote, every president will face difficult decisions whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them, unquote. The founders, by contrast, correctly anticipated the risk of manipulation of vaguely defined crimes by political factions. James Madison, for example, explained the provision of a specific definition of treason in Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1, by stating that it was devised to prevent political factions from devising newfangled and artificial treasons, which have been the great engines by which violent factions, the natural offspring of free governments, have usually wreaked their alternate malignity on each other. Alexander Hamilton likewise cautioned that trial of the misconduct of public men should be assigned to the Senate, not the courts, because they are of a nature which may, with peculiar propriety, be denominated political, and the prosecution of them for this reason will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community, and to divide it into parties, more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. Then Attorney General Robert Jackson expounded the same concern in 1940, emphasizing the sweeping breadth of modern federal criminal statutes. Therein is the most dangerous power of the prosecutor, that he will pick people that he thinks he should get, rather than cases that need to be prosecuted. With the law books filled with a great assortment of crimes, a prosecutor stands a fair chance of finding at least a technical violation of some act on the part of almost anyone. In such a case, it is not a question of discovering the commission of a crime and then looking for the man who has committed it. It is a question of picking the man and then searching the law books or putting investigators to work to pin some offense on him. It is in this realm that the greatest danger of abuse of prosecuting power lies. It is here that law enforcement becomes personal and the real crime becomes that of being unpopular with the predominant or governing group, being attached to the wrong political views, or being personally obnoxious to or in the way of the prosecutor himself. The indictment of President Trump fits this bill. It radically and unlawfully stretches the language of broadly phrased criminal statutes to reach conduct, speech, and political advocacy never before covered by them. It provides yet another example of a federal prosecutor adopting an overbroad interpretation of a vaguely phrased criminal statute, which casts a pall of potential prosecution over even the most commonplace forms of democratic discourse. Sixth, President Trump warned that breaking the tradition against prosecuting presidents for official acts will inevitably lead to future cycles of prosecutions of presidents, ushering in a new era of political recrimination and division. The district court dismissed this concern. Quote, Despite defendants' doomsaying, he points to no evidence that his criminal liability in this case will open the gates to a waiting flood of future federal prosecutions, unquote. Yet the recent history of presidential impeachment 
undermines the district court's blithe assumption that this case will likely be a historically isolated instance. In the 209 years from 1789 to 1998, there was one impeachment of a president, Andrew Johnson, in 1868. In the last 25 years, there have been three, with a fourth currently under consideration by the U.S. House of Representatives. Presidential impeachment is changing from virtually unthinkable to a fixture of interbranch politics and impeachment faces formidable structural checks. It must be voted by a majority of the House, with a supermajority of the Senate required to convict. Criminal prosecution, by contrast, requires only the action of a single enterprising prosecutor and a compliant grand jury. Seventh, citing United States v. Lee, 1882, the district court likened presidential immunity from criminal prosecution to the divine right of kings and held that no man in this country, not even the former president, is so high that he is above the law. But in Butts v. Economu, also citingly, this court rejected the same reasoning and held that absolute immunity does not render an official above the law. Quoting Lee's statement that no man is above the law, Butts held that this principle is consistent with the recognition of absolute immunity, whereas here, history and public policy warrant immunity. In light of this principle, Butts held, federal officials who seek absolute exemption from personal liability for unconstitutional conduct must bear the burden of showing that public policy requires an exemption of that scope. Butts then stated that absolute immunity applies in those exceptional situations where it is demonstrated that absolute immunity is essential for the conduct of the public business. The presidency, of course, presents the most essential of all cases. Likewise, the district court's reasoning overlooks that under the impeachment judgment clause, a former president is subject to prosecution for official acts, provided that he is first impeached and convicted by the political branches. 2. The court should reject the special counsel's proposed briefing schedule. For the reasons discussed above, even if this court grants certiorari before judgment, which it should not, the court should reject the special counsel's proposed briefing schedule, which would require briefing the merits of these issues on a radically compressed timetable. Instead, if and when it considers these issues, the court should grant briefing on the ordinary schedule. What is imperative is that this case be decided correctly, not that it be decided quickly. Haste makes waste, is right so often. Conclusion The petition for a writ of certiorari before judgment should be denied. Respectfully submitted, Counsel for President Donald J. Trump, December 20, 2023. We've come to the end of this brief. Until next episode, 
Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.